Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. We have a really good show for you today talking about a new book entitled The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ, a story that I know as someone who teaches Canadian history, we talk about a lot, but as we'll we'll mention on the show, the historiography of it perhaps somewhat limiting in a lot of ways. So very happy to have the author of this book, Darcy Jenish, on the phone from Ajax, Ontario. How are you doing tonight, Darcy? Very good, Sean. Very good. Uh, thanks for taking the time to, to talk about this book and to, to get in touch with it. Because, like I said, it's one of these things that, you know, students that I encounter, they're aware of the October crisis, but perhaps not all that intimately familiar with some of the finer details. And I had the opportunity to go through this book last night and today before we started to talk. And it does take this really broad view of this critical moment in Canadian history. And before we get into sort of the details of it, I'm curious that for you, your background is journalism, and you've written some other nonfiction historical books, but not really on this topic, right? You've written about uh, sports, for instance, uh, the great days of the Plains Cree, the award-winning book that you wrote there. So how do you find yourself in this particular story, given the background that you have? Yeah, well, I, I tell people that I, I have not been a model of consistency in what I've written about because I've done three books about hockey, two about the opening of the Canadian West. I've, you know, I've, I did one on the deficit debt crisis in the mid-'90s, and uh, I've also been written commissioned histories, uh, including uh, a history of Trent University and a history of uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, and I do have the background in journalism. Uh, I was a senior writer at McLean's for 15 years, but um, so this actually began as as an article that appeared in Legion magazine uh, in October 2010, which was the 40th anniversary of the October crisis. And uh, you know, I got started on the article doing some research, and I thought, well, I'll just call some people I know in Montreal. Maybe they've got some memories that they could share with me, and that would be, uh, you know, that would get my article started. But the second person I talked to said, oh, you've got to talk to Robert Cote. Uh, he knows everything. He was head of the Montreal Bomb Squad in the 1960s. And this fellow turned out to be a very a remarkable individual. He's still alive. He's 82 years old. Um, but uh, So he was involved in the law enforcement side of the story from the spring of 1963 when the first uh, wave of bombings took place until December 3rd, 1970, when the James Cross kidnappers surrendered to authorities. So he had um, the broadest possible view of the whole thing, and he was, he was uh, you know, he dismantled 24 bombs with his bare hands. You know, he investigated dozens of bombings. I mean, the, the, there was the 1968 New Year's Eve bombing of Montreal City Hall, February 1969 bombing of uh, the Montreal Stock Exchange, the September 1969 bombing of Mayor Jean Drapeau's home. Uh, and he was just involved, and he also has a fantastic recall. So the first time I talked to him, he starts telling me about these things he was involved in, and just dates. <clears throat> he could re he could cite dates and events like they were anniversaries or birthdays, 
you know, he was there May 5th, 1966, when uh, investigating a, a bombing at the La Grenade Shoe Company, and a 65-year-old secretary died, and three others were seriously injured. He, he was on the scene uh, March 3rd, 1969, and the police arrested this 24-year-old terrorist, Pierre-Paul Geoffroy. They found three bombs in his apartment that were already made in a trunk full of dynamite. So he had all these fabulous stories. And he also impressed upon me that the terrorism uh, before the October crisis, which was the only thing I knew about, I mean, I was only 18 when that took place, but he talked about how it happened in waves, one after another after another. And so he had this fantastic recall. So as soon as I talked to this guy, I thought, gee, i got to take a closer look. And I went down to meet him in Montreal. And um, he had all these documents. You know, he, he had all the reports of his incident reports from these bombings. And so he had a library about stuff. So he was just kind of the gateway into it. Now, I did a lot of, you know, that's how I got started, was through a magazine article and meeting Robert Cote. And in the 1960s, I would say he was probably the most well-known cop in Montreal, simply because his picture was in the paper all the time. And he, he never gave an interview, though, you know, until... Uh, he gave one interview in July 1970 after uh, the last bomb bomb he dismantled. The next day, it was July 12, 1970. The next day's newspapers called it the Super Bomb, and it was concealed in a stolen Volkswagen Beetle that was parked in a a tunnel under the head office complex of the Bank of Montreal. It had 110 pounds of dynamite. So that was kind of the... That was where the bombings went on, right up until... July 12, 1970, and a short time after that, he did give an interview. So uh, he, he's just a fascinating individual, and he opened up the story for me. Now, I obviously did a whole lot of additional research around his memories and his documents, uh, but he was the way I got into it. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, uh, as a journalist who, who freelance journalist, you come across stories, and, and I came across this, so it was a little bit of... I say luck, but also, of course, very relevant because it's a story about urban terrorism, and you know it's one of the scourges of our day. So uh, it's, it's you know got to touch audiences today. I think. Yeah, and, and what a remarkable resource to find too um, to to use this. But I think that would also help account for the scope of this book because a lot of the stuff that I've seen about the October crisis specifically, it just talks about what happened in 1970, right? It focuses on in on October 1970 and the kidnappings, the murder, and those things. But what you've done with this book, which is really smart, uh, and it tells the story really well, is that you start earlier and you go through that whole history of bombings. And was that something that was really prompted by that meeting with Robert Cote? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, like, <clears throat> I knew about... The cross, you know, the, the uh, October crisis, because that's all that, you know, in English Canada, that's all that anybody was interested in, and, and fundamentally, whether it was right or wrong to impose the War Measures Act. And I had some vague knowledge from, I probably read a, a magazine article about it when I was a teenager about the Westmount mailbox bombing. So I knew that something had happened way, way back before the October crisis. And that, of course, was happened in May of 1963. These these Westmount mailbox bombings, but certainly Robert Cote 
uh, opened my eyes to the fact that there was this whole seven and a half years of it and dozens of bombings and, and you know, there were bank robberies and, and also, like, where did they get the dynamite? Well, um, you know, in the 1960s, Montreal was a construction site because they were building 10 miles of, of subway and they were building the, the auto route Ville Marie, which is a subterranean uh, expressway. And Montreal is is built on a rock and so you can't burrow through you got a blast so there was and, and in fact most of the rock that they blasted out they dumped in the st lawrence to form the second island for expo 67 <laughs> something you would never do today um <clears throat> but at the same time they had very lax loose controls over dynamite they, they just didn't control it and so these guys could just walk up to these construction sites and and there'd be a red box there with white lettering that says explosives, and uh, they could just help themselves. I mean, it might be a night watchman or something else, but uh, so you know he he you know he alerted me to this, and then the wave after wave of of terrorism. And I said, well, gee, didn't they arrest these people? And of course they did. They, the police would break up one gang, they'd go to court, and many of them got very serious, you know, stiff jail sentences. I mean, there were eighty three. Uh, terrorists in 23 sympathizers were convicted of criminal offenses and they served a total of 282 years in prison so it was not you know this was you know they got heavy sentences what was interesting when I got into the story though was um, see you had like a wave of terrorism spring of 63 winter of 64 spring uh, or spring summer of 65 spring spring summer of 66 they took a break in 67 which was centennial year and then from june of 68 almost for two years straight all through 68 69 and into july 70 there were these wave after wave of terrorism so the police would arrest one gang shut them down and then another group would come together but what was interesting was that from October 1963 until the spring of 67, there was an underground journal that circulated called La Cognier. And it was written by some very smart people who um, wrote under pseudonyms. And, you know, a lot of the, the people who carried out the terrorist acts were young guys who were not all that, you know, bright, to be perfectly honest with you. And... Um, they, uh, but these guys that were that were writing this journal, they were smart guys. Some of them, I believe, you know, were, were history professors and the likes. They were, you know, there were some really smart people who wrote this journal, and they published uh, 67 issues of it. And they were the guys who kind of kept it going. They were kind of the glue that that allowed uh, one wave after another, and it was very much like. They were, it, was a, it was a tool, a vehicle for radicalization and recruitment, and very similar to what happens today with Islamic terrorism, and they use the Internet. But back in those days, uh, you had this journal, which would run to, or newsletter, it was like a newsletter, and it was, it was you know, just typewritten, and it would be run off a mimeograph machine, and it would run to 8, 12, 16 pages, and, you know, they, pre, they gave you these history lessons about, you know, how Quebec was, uh, the, the word they used was, you know, Quebec was a colony and, and the Quebecois were, were a colonized people. 
and they had this sort of view of history of constant humiliation and economic, you know, uh, oppression. And but they also have, uh, you know, advice on uh, how to build a bomb, how to blow up a railway track, uh, all this sort of stuff. So they actually have practical advice on on how to uh, commit a terrorist acts. And they also had these little like news in brief on they were called the Revolution on Mars as the revolution goes on, and and uh, so they would give you these little tidbits about things that were happening around the province that they attributed to militants or you know as they called them militants uh, who were committing these these criminal acts. So it was very interesting because of the similarities to what goes on today. And that was kind of the glue that held things together. And then in the spring of 68, Pierre Valliere's book, Negre Blanc d'Amérique, or White Negres of America, comes out. And it's this red-hot polemic that, again, inspires a bunch of these, you know, inspires people to, to rebel and uh, move from protest and demonstrations into action, as they called it. So it was... A very interesting movement. I mean, it was it was unstructured. I mean, there was no no central group that was controlling or coordinating it all. Uh, it was just a lot of you know, it's kind of spontaneous coming together of certain young people who wanted to speed things up and wake up their their elders to the fact that they were an oppressed and colonized people. Um, and I guess the other interesting thing about it was that you know. The 60s was the last generate, last time you had the last cohort of those great big, huge Quebec families, you know, this, the 8, 10, 12 kids. So you had a huge cohort of young guys in the city of Montreal, because most of it happened in the city of Montreal. And uh, they were just, you know, uh, the raw material sort of that could be recruited into this movement. So, like, Bob Cote explained to me how there was wave after wave after wave, and then when I get into the story and I started reading this Laconier, I realized that, that this was kind of part of the clue. This is what kept the, the fire stoked and kept the pot boiling, if you like. That would help lead to this idea of the quiet revolution, right, where one of the things that you, you talk about in the book at the start is sort of how that or when that phrase or term was coined and it was sort of incidental uh, by the news by a newspaper but because it's being done through this publication that's being sent around that speaks to the, the quietness of it but at the same time with this radicalization that's going on in the bombings it strikes me in listening to you that perhaps the term quiet revolution maybe doesn't really apply at least to this particular group of people and arguably that that this movement that is this movement that you're identifying as this ter terrorist movement, you know, there, there's not really a, a name for it that, that I can think of unless we broaden out the October crisis to encompass everything that led into it. Uh, and I don't know if that's a fair thing to do. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's the problem with the quiet revolution for these young folks and, and these, these, I say, these kind of, I think, intellectuals, that were publishing uh, La Cognier was that it was too quiet. They just, uh, it just wasn't going to happen fast enough. I mean, the Quiet Revolution was all about reforming government and, you know, bringing government uh, into the modern age. I mean, after uh, Duplessis, uh, you know, like Maurice, they, 
Maurice Duplessis basically ran Quebec almost from the mid thirties till till nineteen till his death in well, late late fifty eight, I believe it was, or fifty nine. And but he ran, he won four straight majorities in, in forty six, fifty, fifty four and or fifty six, I believe. Uh but anyways and, and so these people called that the Le Grand Noir Sur, the Great Darkness, because Quebec advanced materially and uh you know, prosperity. Uh, there was a certain level of affluence in the province, so it advanced materially. There was great, a lot of investment, highways built, schools built, hydro uh, extended, but culturally, it was still fairly backward. And so, it was the Quiet Revolution was about reforming government and bringing government into a more uh, modern age, basically. But these young people. There was an independence movement started at the same time as the Quebec, the Quiet Revolution, because in the fall of 1960, you had the Rassemblement pour l'Independence Nationale, and it was a movement to promote independence. And they had a youth wing, uh, and it was out of this youth wing that the FLQ emerges. These, these young guys had got involved with this movement, but they lost patience with right off, very quickly. You know, they just had no patience for you know, democratic politics. And they, they, the bombings were meant to kind of wake up the populace. And it's, it's kind of hard to fathom. I mean, you know, these guys, they'd get into court and they'd be explaining what they were, they were trying to do. It was to wake, every, wake up the populace. And somehow or other that made sense to, to them, but it's like terrorism today. It doesn't make sense to somebody that's looking at it from outside because you say, well, how is that going to, you know, achieve anything you see they're trying to wake up the the older generation really their parents but the fact is um the parents did, you know there was only the, the blue collar worker of quebec i mean quebec the, the quebecois were were basically the blue collar workers the muscle that made the economy go uh but they were fairly well paid and, and affluent i mean there was a level of affluence and prosperity that's not generally acknowledged uh, by the kind of the sovereigntists and and that people that look at this history, and, and I say that because having done my research, one of the things I did with the research was I, I went through the newspapers. So I was reading the press all the time, and, and La Presse and the Gazette and the various newspapers. But if you looked at La Presse in the in the sixties, it was this huge newspaper. That there'd be a hundred hundred pages on Wednesday, hundred and ten on Thursday, hundred and twenty on on Fridays, and I'm looking for these little court stories, you know. And I got to this is microfilm, so I got to go through these enormous newspapers looking for a five or six inch court story about some terrorists that are that are on, up on some charges. But it's full of all this display advertising, you know, for the big department stores, and then thirty or forty pages of classified advertising. So it suggests that. There was uh, an, an affluent a class of affluent class of workers, industrial workers in Montreal at the time, and they had no inter interest in a revolution. I mean, why would you? So the bombings made no sense, and so that was kind of why these other two groups, uh, the Cross Kidnappers and the Laporte Kidnappers, tried a different tactic because they realized the bombings were, were not leading anywhere. Um, and, and uh, 
so anyways, it's, you know, it's an interesting story. I mean, the Quiet Revolution was just too quiet for certainly these young people that uh, joined this movement and even the broader, you know, group of young people who would hold stage demonstrations and protest. They wanted to speed things up. And really, the goals of the movement changed. I mean, there was, you know, at first it was just sovereignty, and then you, and then later on with Pierre Valliers and some of these guys get involved. They they want something akin to a communist revolution. I mean, they want to overthrow the capitalist system. And as I say, there was obviously poverty in Montreal, and one can it's obvious that uh, Quebecers, you know, were kind of shut out of the higher echelons of the economy, but those blue-collar workers that were there had a pretty good lives, and they weren't interested in throwing all this away to join some revolution. And the Montreal component of this is quite fascinating as well, because it is really, except for maybe some other parts of Western Quebec, but certainly the in terms of the major centers, the most Anglophone of Quebec cities, and a good component of this discontent is economic related to the, the the discrepancy or disparity between wealth in Montreal related to Francophone and Anglophone individuals. So for you in, in writing about this and, and reading about what is motivating these individuals, how much does that disparity of so much of the wealth in the city going to Anglophones and not to the Francophone community, how much does that play a role in helping to radicalize these individuals? Well, that's definitely a part of it. I mean, they always said that, you know, the Quebec economy ran on, on uh, English-Canadian brains and French-Canadian muscle, and, you know, Westmount was like, you know, it was this, you know, wealthy Anglo enclave just kind of west of downtown Montreal, and, you know, you had St. James Street, which was, you know, that was the business capital of Canada at the time. I mean, uh, that these, this is the, the period where Montreal is still the primary, you know, economic center of Canada. It was, there was a, Toronto was fast overtaking it. Um, but, uh, and there were definitely pockets of, you know, serious poverty in Montreal. I mean, you know, you got St. Henri, uh, Point St. Charles was, was, a pretty rough and tumble neighborhood at the time. Uh, there were certain sections of the East End, but um, you know you could also go to other areas, uh, Rosemont and maybe uh, you know uh, Little Burgundy and some of these places where there were francophone neighborhoods, where there were francophones who were much better off. And there was also a kind of uh, francophone bourgeoisie, as these uh, guys would have it in uh, Côte des Neiges and uh, Outremont. So there was a certain amount of wealth in Francophone, um, uh, in the Francophone community, and, and if not, you know, affluence. But there was also substantial pockets of poverty. And I think that these guys looked, uh, were focused on that and saw this as oppression and exploitation. And, you know, clearly... Francophones were shut out of the management and executive uh, class if, uh, in the economy. So this was all, you know, there were, there were serious, you know, there were legitimate problems with the way Quebec was, Quebec society was structured at that time. I mean, absolutely no doubt about it. 
because the quiet revolution changed all that and created this managerial and executive class and created a professionalized civil service. So Quebec really had to go through a, a, a change and a transformation. Um, but it was just at the amidst all this change and upheaval, it produced a, a radical element that resorted to terrorism and in the final analysis, the kidnappings. Uh, and that, of course, the kidnappings are what everybody, you know, knows about or has some knowledge of. The rest of it is just a blank. And, you know, the reason why I, the, we used the, the, the title, The Making of the October Crisis, it was really that long. I mean, this was the October, like the kidnappings is just is a serious escalation in terms of tactics. But, you know, when you look at seven and a half years of this and, you know, uh, hundreds of bombing, two, a couple hundred, 200 bombings, and he did dozens of bank robberies. There were armory heists early on. Uh, a couple of one of these gangs in, in January, February 1964, they broke into an armory in Montreal and stole dozens of weapons, thousands of rounds of ammunition. And a couple of weeks later, they went out to uh, Shawinigan and did the same thing. I mean, this became a, a, a national issue. I mean, it was in, uh, raised in the House of Commons. There was, you know, the government was under attack. Uh, you know, there were some really, really serious criminal acts committed. And so the, you know, the making of the October crisis, it's, it's, it's the whole sweep of events. And you see, the interesting thing about, we said earlier that, there's been a, a, a lot of uh, substantial body of work uh, produced in Quebec on this whole, especially the October crisis. But some of these uh, writers, you know, some of them are historians or journalists or, and politicians, their view is that there was no crisis in October 1970 until the governments refused to negotiate the release of the kidnappers, or the hostages, uh, then called in the army, then proclaimed the War Measures Act. They say that's what caused, that's what the crisis was, not the kidnappings themselves. But when you look at the whole sweep of events from spring of 63 till the fall of 1970, uh, that's the crisis. And the kidnappings was a serious escalation of tactics that had to be dealt with uh, you know, just had to be dealt with, and it has something had to be done to stop this stuff once and for all. And <clears throat> of course, the other thing that's come out of the kind of the historiography of the October crisis is that you know it is said that the War Measures Act and the 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 arrests, you know, the the police arrested nearly 500 people under the War Measures Act, and most of them were never charged with offenses. But they said that, that the Trudeau government used the, the, the kidnappings and the whole crisis as a pretext for crushing the independence movement. And this is just patently false. And in fact, in my book on pages 258 and 59, I've got a legal, quoted the legal opinion of the Parti Québécois' own lawyer, Potier Ferland, and he delivered his opinion to a meeting of the National Council of the Parti Québécois on October 18, 1970, which was two days after the proclamation of the War Measures Act. And he says explicitly that this act is not targeting our party. We're free to meet 
We're free to uh, we're free to criticize the government. We're free to push our policies. Uh, it's right there, and yet, for years and years and years, uh, people in Quebec have been told, and people have said that the War Measures Act was an attempt to crush the sovereignty movement, and so they've used this. See, again, if you just focus on the October crisis, as many people do, and forget about everything that happened beforehand, you can possibly make the case, as you know, some of the historians and commentators in Quebec have done, that the government was trying to crush the independence movement. And see, they use this, this narrative, and I call it a false narrative, to drive a wedge between Quebecers and their fellow citizens in order to break up the country. Uh, so there's been this, you know, twisting of, of the story, in my opinion. I, I think it's just full of outlandish fabrications. I mean, the other interesting thing that you hear, you you find in in the uh, in the writings is that, you know, they called in the army, put them on in the streets of Montreal and other places of Quebec. But this comes to be called the occupation of Quebec. You know. There were soldiers, there was uh, the Canadian Airborne Regiment. They were apparently the first, uh, you know, group in. They were from Edmonton, although there was a French uh, component of the, of the regiment. But they also moved the Van Dues from, from Valcartier to Montreal. And the Van Dues are the regiment of French Canada. And so, oh, yeah. you know, it's absurd. I mean, it's not an army of occupation. They're Canadian soldiers. They're Quebec soldiers. But they've sold this as the occupation of Quebec. And again, it's it's the federal government hammering Quebec. And so they've used this as a way to drive a wedge between Quebecers and their fellow citizens. And I've spoken to Quebecers, you know, people who are younger than myself who went through the school system, you know, post-October. And I think this is what they were taught. This is what they believe. And, And it's hard to convince them otherwise. Um, but anyways, you know, it's, so it's a, a fascinating story from many, many uh, angles, and uh, and that's certainly one of them. Yeah, so so I pulled up the quote as you were talking there, because I have the book in front of me, and the, yeah, the quote is, quote, that the law itself does not target and is not aimed at other associations or political parties which do not advocate the use of violence or force, but on the contrary, employ democratic methods. It is therefore evident that neither the law nor the regulations tar- target the Parti Québécois. Uh, so there you go, as you say, right there on 258. But I wonder then, in in having that there and seeing the narrative and, and the evidence that you have in the book, I understand why people in Quebec, and you know, we talked before we started to record that the, a lot of the writing on this in Quebec and in French Canada has been from interested parties, so people who were involved one way or the other, so they're invested in it. So it makes sense to a degree that there would be a specific narrative that comes out of those writings. But you you also take issue with the English-Canadian representation of this in terms of what exists and, and probably more importantly of what doesn't exist that looks at this broad sweep of it. So, you know, this this is a, an incident in the October crisis and certainly the Quiet Revolution that has a national impact. You know, the the relationship between the federal government and not only the Quebec government, but just 
Quebec in general uh, and, and Quebec citizens is a really important story in the history of this country and, and what follows this with you know things like Meech Lake and, and all these other events that, that go on. It's really critical to understanding Canada as an entity. So why do you think then that English Canadians or English Canadian historians specifically haven't approached this in this broad way and found some of this evidence that you found? Well, I think, um, you know, my feeling is, of course, that <clears throat> the, the October crisis overshadows everything else. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, I can't quite understand it myself. I mean, it just has not been done. I mean, it's a Quebec story, so it was maybe not something that interested academic, you know, the, the professional historians. And certainly, you know, the only issue that engages uh, uh, or, you know, interests them is the War Measures Act and, and the suspension of, or, you know, of civil rights, the violation of the civil rights of those who were arrested and detained. So that becomes a central issue. And, of course, Pierre Trudeau was, you know, a great defender of civil rights and human rights. And so this uh, contradiction or paradox where he imposes this act and the police go out and arrest 500 people, detain them for, you know, varying lengths of time. I mean, some were held for a few hours, some a few days, some, you know, right up till, you know, weeks and months. Uh, so it's the whole question revolves around Pierre Trudeau and why he did it. And is this a blemish on his record? And, you know, I mean, Pierre Trudeau is, is uh, you know, it's been such an object of, you know, interest or obsession almost, he sort of sucks up all the air or the light. And so this question, this is the question that has absorbed, uh, you know, historians, uh, commentators, you know, political memoirists in English Canada, you know, the debate over was he right or was he wrong. And uh, if you're just looking at the October crisis in isolation, you can maybe spend a lot of time debating that. But once you look, as I say, you look at the whole sweep of events, you say, whoa, time to put the brakes on this and, and stop it once and for all. And see, the other interesting thing that it's just looked at in isolation. See, the other interesting thing about the War Measures Act was that First of all, there was a lot of people who were prepared to provide material support to the kidnappers. And in fact, uh, you know, that's proven out because the Laporte kidnappers were on the run for, uh, you know, from mid-October after the murder of Pierre Laporte until like December 28th because there were people willing to assist them even after they had blood on their hands. Um, so the, the, the authorities were had a legitimate concern about sympathizers who would lend support to the kidnappers. So you had to get some of them off the street, which was one reason why for uh, the arrests. <clears throat> the second reason for imposing the War Measures Act uh, was because there were thousands of college and university students were preparing to uh, abandon their classrooms to demonstrate their support for the kidnappers and the authorities rightly feared that this would lead to riots, violence, and chaos in the streets of Montreal. And again, they had plenty of evidence 
that that could happen because it had happened repeatedly in the 1960s. I mean, you go back to 63, 64, 65, every, what we now call the May 2-4 weekend, which, of course, used to be Victoria Day, was La Fête de la Reine in Quebec, or the festival, the holiday of the Queen, you know, there'd be street demonstrations in Montreal, and these kids would start off in Parc La Fontaine on the east uh, end of Sherbrooke Street. They'd go, you know, give a big gathering, and they'd come out of there, and west on Sherbrooke Street, breaking windows and looting, and and fighting with the police. I mean, this happened repeatedly. Uh, you know, there was the St. John Baptiste Day riot. There was the St. Leonard, and in September in uh, 69, there was the St. Leonard School uh, riot, and there was a taxi riot in early October 1969. So there had been all kinds of street demonstrations and three riots uh, in the late 60s. So the authorities rightly feared that there was going to be riots, violence, and chaos in the streets. And so a decision was made that preserving public order for the many had to take precedence over the civil rights of the few. And when you, you know, you look at that's the crux of the issue. Um, but everybody, you know, the historians and, you know, the, the uh, you know, commentariat or the punditocracy, as we call them, the, the political memoirists, uh, they look at Pierre Trudeau's record as a civil libertarian, and he obviously was, great defender of, of human rights and individual liberties, suddenly, ha- you know, imposes this act. And so that's the question that absorbs their interest uh, to the exclusion of everything else. So it becomes a sort of, again, too much attention focused on the events of October without taking into consideration everything else that took place prior to October and the real potential for uh, dragging the city of Montreal into chaos, which, again, had to be avoided. Uh, you just couldn't have that happening when you're trying to uh, find these hostages. So it's uh, you know it's just no, a story sorry, with a ton ahead. of ton, story with a ton of different interesting fascinating angles to it, and uh, you know I guess it was a little bit luck that I happened to land on it, but it's uh, certainly uh, it's a fascinating story from start to finish. Oh, for sure. And and I just want to ask one final thing. I know I've kept you longer than I thought oh, I would, but just one, one more quick question. Uh, the word terrorism, of course, is in the title. There has been a lot of talk over the past, I guess, 17 years in North America, certainly about terrorism and urban terrorism, as we've seen different events uh, across North America uh, that have been labeled terrorism, and, and some rightly, perhaps some wrongly, but you know the 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 word terrorism here. I, I think I'm, I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing this is used intentionally, in part, not in total, but in part to draw in a connection to today, and so to to indicate to readers that there are lessons here that go beyond the 1960s, and that this book has something to offer to a contemporary audience about contemporary issues. Would I be right in making that assumption? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. It you know, and there and there again. I mean, like I said, there are parallels in that you know you had this this newsletter, this little radical journal circulating. It's very much like uh, the you know internet that's used as you know uh, 
a tool for recruitment, radicalization recruitment today. Very, you know, it's a, it's a striking similarity. The other thing is, of course, that terrorism, it's always episodic and unpredictable. You never know when it's going to happen. You never know when these guys are going to come together and suddenly do something. So, so I think that somebody reading this book will say, wow, I mean, this is almost like what was happening, what's happening today, only it happened here in Canada 50 years, 50 years ago. And, I mean, one, one, there is one substantive difference. They did try to go out of their way to avoid, uh, you know, causing injury or death. But they didn't succeed because six people died before uh, before Pierre Laporte did. Uh, so it was, in its own way, murderous. It was unpredictable. It was episodic. And there were smart people. Again, you know, you look at who who's really behind terrorism today, usually probably fairly smart people. Some of the people that carry out the acts we think are, are kind of manipulated and, you know, not always the brightest people on the planet, and you can find the same thing here. I mean, smart people were preaching very radical ideas that appealed to young people who felt disenfranchised and kind of at loose in society, and it's very similar to to what is taking place today. And I, I just think it's worth, obviously, Canadians knowing that, that we had a very serious uh, brush with urban terrorism uh, long before, uh, you know, the 21st century version, which is motivated by, by totally different, uh, you know, has totally different roots and origins. But we had our own brush with it. And, uh, you know, people that read the book uh, who were probably as ill-informed on these events as I was when I started off are a little bit flabbergasted that this really happened here and Yes, you bet it did. And that's why we will encourage people to go get the book and, and take a look. And as I said, I went through uh, a lot of it last night and today. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I feel like I say this, uh, maybe not enough, but, you know, one of the things that I like about history books, uh, good history books, is when they're well-written. And I know that, you know, in the Academy scholarly books, I've had professors tell me that style and stuff doesn't matter as much, but this one, if you just even if you go to a bookstore, it, just read the the prologue if you're sort of on the fence about the book. Uh, I really like the way the prologue set it up, so uh, I, I definitely enjoyed it, and I, we encourage everybody to go get it. Again, it's the making of the October Crisis: Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ. And I'd like to thank our friends at Penguin Publishing, Penguin Random House Canada, for helping facilitate this and also like to thank of course Darcy Jenish and you can pick up the book at all your fine retailers you can also find them online at darcyjenish.com where you can not only read about all of his work you can order books about this one and some of his past books so definitely check it out at darcyjenish.com Darcy thank you so much for taking the time tonight well thank you very much Sean really appreciate it if you have any questions or comments for the show you can find us at HistorySlam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. 
Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.